Wow, with wisdom. <laughs> that's, uh, Dana, that's... Lower, lower the expectations, everybody. It's great to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay. And uh, part of the team here, welcome to Westgate. Everybody watching online, thank you so much for being here. It's really, really good to see you. Uh, before we jump into the, <clears throat> into the teaching this morning, I just want to take a moment. I so appreciated Mark's words that despite... You know, the ups and downs of life that will always come. Um, life is never a straight, linear, you know, plateau. There's all these ups, all these downs. Despite all of that, that God is still on the throne. Literally right now in this moment, God is on the throne. That's what we believe. And I so appreciated Dana's prayer, you know, for all that is happening in the world. I, I want to take a moment for us to just breathe deeply before we jump into the teaching. Again, as Dana mentioned um, you know, I'll be very honest with you guys. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted having to come up here all the time and say, here we go again, like another thing in the world. But um, it, it is heartbreaking nonetheless. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had to pray for a shooting in a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. There's a shooting at a church in Orange County. And then um, an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And we live in such a strange time because we hear about everything all the time. And then you mix that with the reality that there's stuff that's heartbreaking just in your own life. Like not out there somewhere, but literally in your neighborhood or your home or your heart. And at the end of the day, we just find ourselves at a loss and again, exhausted. This has been a hard week for me on a personal level. And that mixed and conflated with everything happening out there, I just, I come so desperate today, you know, for God's grace and his rule and his reign. So what I want to do before we jump into the teaching this morning is I just want to pray for us one more time. And I want this prayer to be a, uh, just a deep breath that we take so that we can collectively open our hearts and minds to whatever it is the Lord might have for us today. Um, so I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and I'm going to read this prayer over us. It's adapted from uh, a writer named Douglas McKelvey, and I've found it immensely helpful throughout this week, and um, so I thought I would share it. So with our eyes closed, let's pray together. Jesus, in a world that is so wired and interconnected, our anxious hearts are pummeled by an endless barrage of troubling news. We are daily aware of more grief than we can rightly consider and of more suffering and scandal than we can rightly respond to. But Jesus, you are not disquieted by such news of cruelty and terror. You are neither anxious nor overwhelmed. And when the cacophony of universal distress unsettles us, we are reminded that we are but small and finite creatures never designed to carry the vast abstractions of great burdens. For our arms are too short and our strength too small. Justice and mercy, healing and redemption, these are your great labors, Jesus. And yet you desire to accomplish such works through us, your people, while never asking any one of us to undertake more then your grace will enable us to fulfill. And so Jesus, guard us from shutting down our empathy, 
Move our hearts to respond with compassion and love and empower us by your spirit to fulfill the small part of your large redemptive work which you've assigned to us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Um, Today, we are landing the plane, so to speak. We are winding down a journey that we've been on for the last month and a half or so, a journey through wisdom. And this entire series, full disclosure for me, has just mostly been a long look in the mirror. It's really been an opportunity for me on a personal level to consider my utter lack of wisdom in so many facets of my life, and hopefully for you as well, a chance to think about the possibility that you could live a wise life. And the reason this is important is because, as we've said from the beginning of the series, we don't want wisdom just for the sake of wisdom. We don't want wisdom so that we can walk around and tell everybody how wise we are. We long for wisdom, whether you're Christian or not, religious or not, I believe, whether you know it or not, you actually long for wisdom because wisdom is a dynamic gift from God which helps us to build worthwhile lives. A dynamic gift from God that helps us build worthwhile lives. And if that is true, this is why I believe then, as a result, we all long for wisdom because we all long for worthwhile lives. We all long for a sort of life that at the end of life, we might look back and say, you know, that was a life worth living. None of us are here today because we are completely satisfied with just sort of a ho-hum, mediocre story to tell. We all at least, whether it's true in our lives currently or not, we at least long for a worthwhile life. And so to do that, to try and pursue wisdom, the wisdom of God that helps us live worthwhile lives, build worthwhile lives, we've been asking several questions, questions that wisdom asks of us, questions that allow us to look at every decision, every circumstance, every situation before us and choose the path of wisdom over and against the path of whatever it might be, comfort, ease, even prosperity, self-gain, whatever it might be. This isn't easy, but again, it does lead to a worthwhile life. And today, we arrive at the final question. And the final question, I'll just give it to you right off the bat. The final question that wisdom asks is this. What does love require of me? If you want to live a wise life, If you want to choose wisdom as much as possible every step of the way, then whatever situation, circumstance, or decision is before you, the question you and I must ask in order to live wise lives is the question, in this situation, circumstance, or decision, what does love require of me to do? And to answer that question or to deep dive into that question, we have to first address the the concept of love. Because culturally, we understand love a particular way. Most people, not all of us, but most people understand love primarily on a surface level, that love is a set of euphoric feelings, this fast ascent up a mountain of emotions, butterflies in the stomach. That's the version of love that media sells you for $10.99, right? That's love. It's the feeling you get. 
But most of us also know that that's a very shallow understanding of love, or better yet, a misunderstanding of love. So for us to be able to ask the question that wisdom asks of us, what does love require of me? We have to begin by asking the question, well, what does the Bible say about love? How does the Bible define love? And love is all over the scriptures. And I could have taken you any number of places. In fact, we'll go to several different places today. But let me just take you to one place, a really popular place that many people know and a passage that you hear at weddings a lot. 1 Corinthians 13. What does it tell us? It tells us that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Interesting. This is not culture's rendering of love. Again, culture tells us that love is a set of euphoric feelings, this quick ascent up a mountain of emotions or butterflies in the stomach. But biblically speaking, at least here, love is so much more than that. Love is far more proactive than it is passive. Love demands far more effort than it does simply a receiving of particular emotions or feelings. I would summarize it this way, that biblically speaking, love is a courageous commitment that we make. A courageous commitment that we make. That is the Bible's understanding of love. Love is, again, not something we passively receive or stumble upon, but a courageous commitment that we make. Keep that in mind. That'll be really important throughout the morning. Um, last year, my wife and I were uh, shopping for a new car. We ended up not buying a new car, which was a mistake, but um, we were shopping for a new car, and in, in particular, we were shopping for an electric vehicle. So we went to a few dealerships. We even test drove a few cars, and uh, we were doing what everybody does when they shop for a car. We were doing math. You know what I mean? Like, so we were like, okay, gas prices are this much, and this is why we should have bought a car back then, because it wasn't as high as it is now. But we're doing all the math. Okay, gas costs us this much every month. If we finance the car, how much interest? If we just pay it outright, we lose that money from our savings. Should we get an electric vehicles? What, what does that do for like our electric bill? We're doing all of the math to try to figure out what, what the, the smartest decision before us would be, right? And that's what you do. That's what you do with financial decisions. You weigh the pros and cons. You do sort of a cost-benefit analysis, profits, losses, all of that. And then at the end of the day, you make a decision that benefits you the most, correct? Nobody would argue with that. Imagine I applied that same approach to my children. I have a seven-year-old and an almost four-year-old. Imagine I wake up tomorrow morning and they wake up too early and they're screaming and running around the house asking for cereal. And imagine as a father, I think to myself, let's do like a little cost analysis here. What, like what is the potential return on investment on this child? Because these children cost me a lot of money. And if time is money, they cost me a lot. I mean, a lot of money. 
So I'd look at my daughter and I would think like, okay, what are her skills? She's seven now. If I put in X amount of dollars and time over the course of the next 17 years, she's 24, she gets a job, how many years till I get a good solid return on investment? Will I ever make a profit? And then I look at my almost four-year-old son and immediately to me I'm like, no, this is a bad investment, this little guy. You know? What if I did that? I thought to myself, okay, I think I have a good lay of the land. If we laugh because it's so ludicrous, but if I were being dead serious right now, you'd all be on the phone to like Child Protective Services. You'd be like, this guy is not fit to be a dad. What a ridiculous idea. Why? Because when it comes to a love relationship, you do not do math. That's not, love by its definition is not math. In fact, I would suggest to you that by its definition, love betrays the math. That's why it's love. Because it actually makes itself abundantly clear that in order to love most of the time, it requires you to take a loss. You know what I'm saying? And yet for those of you who have kids, like me, you would do that 100 times over. Even if you don't have kids, when you think about the person that you are closest to or your group of friends that you know you would give your life for, you don't do math. No. You are willing to take a loss because the best stories are stories of love, and love always betrays the math. And so when wisdom compels us to ask the question, what does love require of me? In essence, we are asking the question, what is the most courageous, committed thing I can do, even if it does not benefit me in the immediate? Let me share a story with you from the scriptures, story of a young woman who chooses love despite the math clearly not working in her favor. It's the story of a woman named Ruth. There's a book in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that's named after her, and it tells us her story. Let me read for you the opening lines, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion, the sons, also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, so this is a big, broad, sweeping story, but let me just try to summarize. This is a sad and dire situation. The way the story opens, it is utterly depressing. This woman, Naomi, has literally lost everything and her life is in shambles. 
Her husband has passed away. Her two sons have passed away. And now she's got these two young women who were her daughters-in-law, but are now no longer in the ancient world connected or bound to her in any way because her sons, who were the husbands of these daughters-in-law, have now passed away. In the ancient world, if a woman like Naomi was without a husband and sons, she was essentially left for dead. At the time, in the culture, that's what happened. If a woman did not have husbands and sons, she was left for dead because she had no legitimate means of survival. This is in many ways a sort of barbaric culture in which women had very little rights. So for a woman like Naomi, this is the end of the line. She's got nothing left. Her husband, gone, sons, gone. She's got these two young women who were her daughters-in-law. She cannot care for them. She can't even care for herself. She is essentially resigned to a life of absolute um, depravity and poverty and lack. And so the story continues and says this. Naomi said to these two young women who were her daughters-in-law, Naomi said to them, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And at this, they, these women, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Try to remember that word. Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. This woman, Ruth, does not need to go back to her former mother-in-law, Naomi's homeland. In fact, to do so would be an, an utterly dangerous decision for Ruth. Let me explain. Remember that Ruth is not Jewish, she is a Moabite woman. And long story short, there's like a lot of detail I'm gonna leave out here, but just to summarize, the Moabites were the descendants of an incestuous relationship between Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, Lot and his daughter. And so essentially the Moabites were like an, an unwanted people group. They were the result of a, 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 an absolutely despicable sin. And because of this, the Moabites throughout the Old Testament are primarily portrayed as um, antagonists to the Jewish people, antagonists to God's people. They were essentially enemies of the Jews. And Naomi is what? Jewish. And for Naomi to go back to her Jewish homeland and for Ruth, a Moabite woman, hated by the Jews, to go back with her 
And remember, not just to go back with Naomi, but have no support and no covering from a man in a male-dominated world, Naomi and, not Naomi, Ruth is making a very dangerous decision and it requires immense courage. And that's the point. Love requires courage. When it says um, that Ruth was determined to go with her, you saw that line, right? Ruth was determined to go with her. That word determined is the Hebrew word amatz. And the word amatz in Hebrew, it doesn't really mean determined. It's actually a word that's most translated strength and courage. So literally the sentence reads, Ruth couraged herself up to go with Naomi. This is love. Love requires courage. I don't know what that means for you today, but it probably means all sorts of things. If you want to live the wise life, as you ask the question, what does love require of me? Maybe in your life right now, love requires the courage to confess when it'd be easier to deceive. Maybe right now in your life, love requires the courage to stand up and speak when it'd be easier to stand down and stay silent. Maybe in whatever circumstance or situation you find yourself in, maybe today, love requires the courage to go when it'd be easier to stay. Or maybe love requires the courage to stay when it'd be easier to go. Whatever it is, love requires courage. I want to show you the picture of a, uh, of a woman named Lydia Angie. This is Lydia Angiou in 2006 receiving the Canadian Medal of Bravery. She's receiving it from the mayor of Quebec, Canada. Um, I don't know if they call them mayors yet. I don't know Canadian government. Whatever the person is called, right? She's Canadian. She lives in northern Quebec, and she's receiving the Medal of Bravery. The reason Lydia Angiou is receiving the medal, received the Medal of Bravery in 2006 is because shortly before this photo was taken... Remember, northern Quebec, Canada, and this happened in the winter. Lydia Angiou was walking with her seven-year-old son and a couple of his friends down the street to a hockey game. And all of a sudden, her son and his two friends start screaming. And Lydia Angiou turns around and she sees in front of them a 700-pound polar bear bearing down upon the children. So what does Lydia Angiou, who is about five foot nothing, weighs 100 pounds, what does Lydia Angiou do? Does she do the math? Does she think to herself, that polar bear looks like it weighs seven times as much as me? Does she say, you know, I remember watching that National Geographic special about polar bears and how one swipe of the paw from a polar bear could rip my face off. Does she do that? No. No. 100-pound, 45-year-old Lydia Angiou fights a 700-pound polar bear. She tells her children, her son and his two friends, to run as far and as fast as they can, and she fights a 700-pound polar bear for upwards of 90 seconds. And she survives until a neighbor comes out with a shotgun. 
And then she receives the Medal of Bravery. Now, mathematically, logically, a 100-pound woman fighting a 700-pound polar bear makes no sense, right? But no one in this room is confused by this story. Is anyone confused? Like nobody is thinking, well, what was she thinking? What, what an idiot. Is anyone thinking that? No. Because this is the love of a mother for her child. This is what love does. It betrays the math and it reveals courage you did not know you had. This is not to say we should go out seeking trouble. That would be utterly unwise. But this is to say when situations and circumstances are before us in expected or unexpected ways, the wise life demands we ask the question, what does love require of me here? And love most of the time demands courage. M. Scott Peck puts it this way, that if an act is not one of work or courage, then it is not an act of love. There are no exceptions. Ruth's story also reveals a second component of love. Verse 14, it says that Ruth clung to her. Ruth clings to Naomi. This word clung is the Hebrew word dubak. And the word dubak doesn't just mean physically hold on. It's actually, um, in the biblical language, it's a covenantal word. It's the word that was used to describe when a husband would make a commitment for a lifetime to a wife. It's like a vow. It's also the same exact word used to describe in the Old Testament God's promise of love toward us, his people. So this isn't just about physically clinging on. The word essentially means that Ruth was devoting herself, committing herself through thick and thin to Naomi. And that's what love does. Love commits. As a pastor, I have um, officiated, I don't know how many weddings at this, like, at this point. So many. And it's so interesting, near the end of every wedding ceremony, you read the vows. And then the, the two people, the groom and the bride, they say, I do. And the cynic in me, it's a beautiful moment, by the way, but the cynic in me every single time, almost every single time when I read the vows and the groom and the bride say, I do, there's like a whisper in the back of my mind that's always wondering, like, seriously, you do? Because this is crazy. Let me read for you, uh, just last year, I officiated the wedding of two friends, Noah and Elaine. Let me read for you just the last line on this long set of vows. Let me just read just the last line of the vows that they committed to one another. I looked at them. I looked at Noah, the groom, and I said, Noah, do you promise to love Elaine selflessly and unconditionally through whatever you encounter in this life? Finding joy in the good times and the bad times. And with confidence, Noah looked at Elaine, tears in his eyes, and he was like, I do. And I was thinking like, for reals, you do? Did you hear what I just said? No conditions, dude. Unconditionally, selflessly. It's not, you just gave up your life on this altar. Selflessly and not like, the, like some things that you encounter in life. Did you hear me? I said, whatever you encounter in this life, whatever, that's everything. Like, you do? And he was like, I do. 
And then I looked at Elaine and I read the whole set of vows and with confidence and tears, she was like, I do. And I was like, for reals, really? Is it that easy? Is it that crazy? Now they're doing great. Their marriage is wonderful and most marriages are whatever, right? But think about the commitment. I'm not like pointing my finger at anybody. I did the same exact thing back in January of 2009. I stood across from Jenny and the pastor read a bunch of vows and I was like, I do. And then over the last 13 years, I have failed to actually do so many times. And it's Jenny's grace and God's grace that keeps us together. And thank God for grace. But this is crazy. But this is love. Love demands commitment like this. Love requires commitment. If you want to live the wise life, and love is that, that's the question. What does love require of me? Essentially what the question is, is what is the most committed, courageous thing I could do in this situation? Not the easy thing, not the comfortable thing, not the thing that benefits me the most, most immediately, not where like the spreadsheet, the profit loss, the, the pros and the cons, not where the spreadsheet leads me, but rather what is the most courageous and committed decision I can make right now? For some of us right now, that might mean that love is asking us to make a commitment to a relationship over an opinion. Maybe that's you today. Or maybe love is asking you to make a commitment to a promise over a better option right now. Or maybe love is asking you right now in this moment today, in this season of your life, to make a commitment to a community over your preferences or your politics. Because that's what love does. It acts with courage and commitment in mind. And it's hard. It's really difficult. C.S. Lewis, in The Four Loves, he puts it this way. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. I should read this at the next wedding I officiate. It's like, you guys look really lovely. Before the vows, I just want to read something. You must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Okay, let's continue. Right? Then do the vows. He continues, he says, wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Courage and commitment are what keep love alive in us. Courage and commitment are the air that love breathes. And when I think about the Ruth story, what I find most profound about the story is how Ruth's decision to choose love actually leads her to a brand new life. Verses 16 and 17, what does Ruth say? She says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And this is the key. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite, not Jewish. 
But she's not making a rash decision here to leave the gods of her Moabite upbringing and to go with Naomi, not back, simply back to the homeland, but back to the God of Israel. This is not a rash decision. Remember, Ruth has been married, to this, married into this Jewish family for years at this point before the death of her husband. She was familiar with the customs and the beliefs of this family. And more importantly, she was familiar with the God of this family, our God, the God we sang to just moments ago. This is essentially Ruth's public declaration of loyalty, not just to Naomi, but to God himself. And this may have been Ruth's wisest decision of all. Because of Ruth's decision to choose love, generations later, one of her descendants, one of Ruth's descendants, would embody and express her same courage and committed love in a whole new way. The opening lines of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, they begin with Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' family tree. You know what it says? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then down to verses five and six. Boaz, the father of Obed, who was the mother of Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Jesus, the savior of the world, is born into Ruth's family. And this Jesus would embody the courage and the commitment of love that his ancestor Ruth embodied in a whole new way. In fact, this Jesus would go on to say in John chapter 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's love. And to lay down your life for another is impossible without courage and commitment. Love like this, laying down your life for another, both literally as Jesus did and figuratively as we are all called to do in so many ways, is not possible unless it is a decision laced with courage and commitment. And we are here, those of us who are followers of Jesus, receiving and embracing and living in the goodness of God's love for us with hope today and hope for all of eternity because Jesus did the courageous and committed thing by laying down his life for us. That's why we're here. I'm gonna invite Mark and the team to come back up and we're gonna sing and respond and we're actually gonna take the bread and the cup of communion together in a moment to remember, to celebrate, and to thank God for that incredibly courageous commitment of love that he made to us through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Before we do, I wanna tell you one quick story. I'll show you a picture this is a picture of my dear friend, Nini, who is a dear, dear friend. And she, uh, I served on staff with her at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz for four years. And she's a passionate follower of Jesus, loves the Lord. And um, this is a picture of her and her dear friend, Brian. Brian is like a second dad to her. Brian's daughter is Nini's best friend. And still to this day, 
most major holidays Nini's family and Brian's family spend together. They're essentially family. Several years ago, Brian had significant kidney failure and his doctors basically told him, in order to survive, you need a new kidney. But because of your age and some other circumstances, you're very low on the donor list. So really, in order to survive, what you need is a kidney from a direct donor. You need somebody you know with a healthy second kidney to give their kidney for you. And when Nini heard this, she, as she tells the story, she says it was like a no-brainer. She just thought to herself, like, oh, I don't need both. Let's give him one. I love him. He's like my dad. Well, what's really interesting is, I didn't know this until Nini told me, but when you decide to donate an organ, like a kidney, to someone else, when you go to the hospital, when you walk into the operating room, after you sign all the papers, when you walk into the operating room, literally nobody in the operating room can touch you. You have to dress yourself and then you have to actually walk your way to the operating table and physically climb the table on your own and lay yourself down. The reason for this is legality. It's because they wanna make sure that every step of the way, the decision to give up your organ for another, essentially give up a part of your life for another is your decision. And so the way the Nini tells the story, she says that um, as she went, and she's like four foot 11, she's this small little um, firecracker of a woman. She's like climbing up this big, tall operating table. And the way she tells it, she says that as she did, she started crying because she wondered to herself, what if something goes wrong? Who's gonna take care of my kids? She's got two young children, two teenagers now. She's wondering all of this. And then, these are her words. She says she laid herself down on that operating table. I blinked away the tears, trusted God with our lives, and laid myself down. I blinked away the tears, trusted God with our lives, climbed the table and laid myself down. And today, um, Brian and Nini are both healthy and they're doing great. They still spend all their major holidays together because Nini gave a part of her life for her friend. She laid herself down. And when Brian tells this story, he always prefaces it this way, always. He says, let me tell you a love story. Let me tell you a God story. Because this is what love really looks like. Love is not a set of euphoric feelings, this fast ascent up a mountain of emotion and then just a, a faster descend down. Love is not butterflies in the stomach primarily. Love is the willingness to lay yourself down. It's a courageous commitment we make to lay our lives down for another as Christ has done for us. And choosing love is the path to a life of wisdom, the path to a worthwhile life, which we all long for. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So as we sing and respond, I want to invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, there are tables in the front and two tables in the back. At any time, I wanna invite you to come and receive the bread and the cup. You can take it back 
to your chair and just take in remembrance of Christ's courageous commitment of love to us whenever you are ready. And as we do, as a prayer, as we sing, may we ask that God might make us into the sorts of men and women who embody that.